This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And you're going to find, like you mentioned, the more you do this and the more you study genetics and you understand about how things are passed on, your percentage of quality dogs is going to be higher and higher. It's just going to keep going up higher and higher. And you're going to get a really consistent, happy-go-lucky, structurally sound dogs. And also, too, you also want to go to a breeder that probably does um, a lot with their puppies. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a little agility course, tunnels to go through, ramps to go up and down, and a lot of socialization, mm-hmm. you know, with their puppies. Because those first eight weeks of their life can set that dog for life. In the bearded collie... I'm looking for one of the most important things that I'm looking for, besides temperament, because temperament is above everything, mm-hmm. is I want a structurally sound shoulder assembly in the front. Because it's the front assembly that's going to be pulling that dog up over. Mm-hmm. It's going to be that front assembly that's going to be taken off when you're running with your dog. And I want a strong rear. Mm-hmm. And I want a good body length and nice long rib cage because that's going to be lung capacity for them to hold out when they're out there. Um, and that you start with a blank slate, but as I stack my puppies up on their grooming table in their puppy room, probably three to four times a day, because I can't keep my hands off of them, you start to see it. Mm-hmm. You start, and, and that's the puppy that every time you put it up on the table, it doesn't move its feet. Mm-hmm. And, so, and I'll say to somebody, do you see that? And they'll go, well, what do you mean? And I go, a dog that doesn't move his feet and it stands really nice. Is, is comfortable in its body, and it means that it's structurally sound. Mm. It's balanced. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for a balanced dog. That would be the number one word, I guess, balanced, front and rear. Um, there's other things that can come up, like I have a gorgeous female right now that um, she probably would have been finished this year, but there's been no shows. She moves like a dream. The one thing I don't like about her, her eyes are a little light. I prefer a darker eye, mm-hmm. but she doesn't move on her eyes. You know, that's... Her eyes are fine. It's just that I prefer a darker eye. So when I go to breed her, I'm going to look to compliment her to find a male just like her, but with a darker eye, because the darker eye is dominant over the light eye. And because I don't want to keep that going, you know, I want a darker eye. And there's been some phenomenal males out there with a lighter eye, and that's why we're starting to see a little bit more because it was ignored and. That's not the most important thing, but when you start to see too much of a fault, then you have to, you know, for hey, let's pull back. Where are we going to go? Mm-hmm. And um, I have my male that I had from the Netherlands, and I, he's on frozen semen. I'm just waiting to use it on one of my dogs because he's the darkest eye imaginable. And it's like, so a lot of us do that too. Is that we get a young dog that's promising, we'll freeze the semen on it mm-hmm. and use it years down. He was collected in. I think 2000 mm-hmm. yeah 20 years ago so you pay storage every year and <laughs> with a vet but that's looking toward the future mm-hmm. on maintaining your your bloodlines a lot of people said how would you improve the breed i don't think our breed needs improvement i mean people tend to toss that out i just like to maintain the quality of our breed is what i would like to do mm-hmm. 
I would like to just maintain the good things that we have. I don't. I think it's kind of hard to improve upon the bearded collie myself. I think it's a. They're a wonderful dog. I dealt quite a bit with that coming from the border collie world. I mean, we have a breed on the west coast here called the McNabb, uh-huh. and that basically was a dog that came from Scotland in the 1800s to the McNabb Ranch in Ukiah, right. and they bred to the local dogs because they didn't want the heavy coat; they wanted a shorter coat. Right. You know, they didn't want the big head. The problem, I think, with the bearded collies that I have seen, and you can people can argue the point with this. I think the coat on several of the dogs being shown has gotten too profuse. And some people would say, well, it's, um, oh, it's just grooming. I said, no, there's certain bloodlines that carry a heavier coat. Uh-huh. People that work on ranches, they're working on stock, do not want a heavy, profuse coat that's going to be matting all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, the harsh, old-fashioned coat is so easy to take care of. Mm-hmm. You have to put a lot more work into it to get it to finish in the show ring because a harsh coat will break off. Right. So preservation for me is... The breed is not going to be around if we're breeding dogs that people aren't going to want to take care of. Mm-hmm. We've lost the large ranches as far as getting a dog to work stock. I mean, people can be hobby breeders, and we've got sheep and we had cattle. It's not a breed that's used extensively because of the care. Like in California, we run with a lot of ranchers. They want slick-coated dogs. They do not want all this hair. Right. So I think... What I'm preserving my breed for is as companions, even though they were bred for working, and I sent you several pictures of my dogs working, Mm -hmm. they were bred for working and people just love it, but it's going to take a lot of care of their coats if you're going to work them on stock and you're going to have them out, you know, in foxtails and mud and dirt and all that. Um, but I think the bearded collie is so versatile that it's filled so many venues you know, like we talked about, agility, therapy, herding, obedience. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of introducing other breeds because we have enough herding breeds that do what everybody needs right now. Right. Um, and the bearded collie, regardless of the fact that it's not bred for herding, still herds. I've got one young one right now. I have to be careful when I'm running my dogs because she goes to the head mm-hmm. of all my dogs. And she's, she's, she's herding. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to probably... Um, I'm going to probably take her down to the Bay Area and, and put her with a trainer and start training her for stock trials because she's that good. Mm-hmm. But she's really strong. She's really strong. And the only concern I have is taking her into the heat, right. you know, in the summertime. So I'll probably be just spring training and then bring her home because I won't put her out in the you know, heat in Sacramento, that whole area down there. Right. But people are working their beardies and they're working show lines. Uh-huh. So I, I, I don't see the need to introduce other dogs. I know what you're talking about because, like I said, my border collies that I have um, are working stock. Mm-hmm. They're, they're cow dogs. It's, it's not show lines. And so we've trialed our dogs around people that do cross. And my best friends on a ranch and they cross dogs all the time to get what they want to work cattle. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, what, my best advice to anybody that is new, and I have young people, uh-huh. younger than me, that want to get involved, and I'll say, did you read the book? And they'll go, well, I went online and said, no, 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 no. Did you read the book? Mm. <laughs> and I said, you need to know where they came from. You need to understand mm. the back of these dogs. When I went to Europe, um, I had written several people, and I actually went to kennels in Germany and 
in France, and I went to the French Nationals, and I went to talk to the people that were older that were in Beardies when it first started, and I went around to all these kennels, and when I applied for my judging license, the AKC rep, when she, because you have to be interviewed, mm-hmm. she said, the one thing about your application is the fact that you went and interviewed all these breeders yeah. and asked about the bloodlines of their dogs. And my hagen was from an old, old bloodline, and that's why I brought him over. He wasn't shown very much, mm-hmm. but every a lot of his puppies made a huge mark in the United States. You you can talk to any bearded collie person that's been around and say, did you ever know hagen And that's all you have to say. His name was hagen And he produced, this is interesting, fabulous temperament, fabulous structure, but he never worked stock a day in his life. <laughs> I'm yeah. not kidding. Yeah. But I learned from my rancher friends that he can skip a generation. He had kids that were phenomenal on livestock. Right. But if I put him on my sheep, he would go out to the sheep to see what they were eating. That was about it. You know, he, he did not care to work stock at all. But he was a fabulous producer. So, you know, he's behind almost all my dogs that I have here now. And, it, and he produced. His daughters were phenomenal just phenomenal as were, were his sons so you have to have an open mind where you're into breeding but you really have to know your history and you have to call people up or go to a show and talk to somebody and just say hey do you have a minute you know i, I wanted to ask you about this bloodline you know what, what do you think of that bloodline and then I'll say, well, you know, the reason they did Hagenoff was because his mother had a white eye and they went to the Sunbreeze bloodline and this is what you get into. And he said, you look for this on your bloodline. This is what you're looking for. And, um, and then you need to understand genetics. Mm-hmm. Good shoulder assembly is recessive. Light eyes recessive. Dark eyes is dominant. So there's, there's certain rules that always apply across the board. It's like I, I try and tell people, I go, you're not going to go out with a Pomeranian together sheep. No. And I say, because they just don't have it in them. Right. You know, and I've actually had border collies that did not work. Yeah. They came from dogs that have won the working dog nationals. Mm-hmm. And somebody had said to us, well, get rid of her. She was the most beautiful border collie we ever had. She yeah. was so sweet. She was so wonderful. And I said to my husband, I said, you know what? She's got it behind her. And I said, there's that really nice dog from Texas that's down in Monterey. We're going to breed her to Rudy. Well, she went on to produce the most phenomenal working dogs, and she never worked a day in her life. So the genetics is behind those dogs, and it comes up. All of a sudden, it pops up, and you see it. The problem we have is we don't have the work for these dogs that they had that they were bred for. So do you tone down the genetics? Uh I just got a bearded collie back that I co-bred with another breeder, Patty, wonderful gal, and she doed me a puppy. And it was out of a dog that I sold. It was a phenomenal working dog. And it was the last year. And she said, oh, she's the only black female. I really want to keep her. I'm getting a little too old. Do you mind if you don't take her? And I said, ah, not a problem. But she was everything I wanted in my breeding program. Well, then she called me in May and said, you know what? And I go, what? She goes, she's way too much dog for me. <laughs> she said, she's the type of dog that you like. And I said, not a problem. I'll come over and get her. And I got her. And I brought her home. My husband goes, what a great dog. I said, yeah, but not for Patty. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. she was great for me because I'm on four acres. Yeah. I, it's rough and tumble. She's kind of bombastic. She doesn't have an aggressive word, but she wants to work. And she's she's just too much dog. She'd be too much dog for a lot of pet people. Mm-hmm. And you recognize that when they're little. And that's why you have to be really careful where you place your dogs. 
you know, you, you need to know the people, what your lifestyle do you run, how old are you? I actually ask people that. How old are you? Right. You right. know? And they'll go, well, I'm 75. And I go, yeah, probably not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. but I get that a lot of that. I do get a lot of that because they're pretty and they're, they look sweet and, mm-hmm. until they knock grandma down, you know, <laughs> and stuff like that. And that's when you, so you recognize what you have. Because you've been doing what yeah. you've been doing. Yeah. A lot of people try and change that, and you do the best you can to monitor it. That's your responsibility that you could read your dog. Yeah. I mean, I've got neighbors that walk their black lab every day, and he's in front of our house. He's a little aggressive. They walk him at 825 every day. I make sure all my dogs are locked up. Right. Because otherwise my dogs will fence run, and I know it. And my husband goes, let the dogs out. I said, no, they're walking um, Ramsey down the road. And he goes, when? I go, 825 every day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I don't want a bunch of fence-running dogs. Yeah. You know, that's not fair to them either because they should be able to walk their dog. This is this is interesting you bring that up yeah. because we trained our Border Collies with Merlin, Sandy, Newton, which were in Red Bluff, top stock dog people. We bought the Border Collie that didn't work, okay, mm-hmm. from them. They didn't do health tests. They didn't do anything. They said, get rid of her. And I told my husband, I said, you know what's really interesting? They make a big deal about this working ability. The minute something doesn't go right, they're down the road. Yeah. Whoever's got the money, they sell the dog. Yeah. And I said, they don't put any thought into why this is. And I told Sandy, I said, we're not getting rid of Bootsy. No. And she and I go. She's really well read. She goes, yeah, but she doesn't work. And I go, that doesn't mean that she can't produce. Yeah. My girlfriend that owns a huge ranch, Cape Town, on the Lost Coast. They're we're best friends. Her first dog, they they got a dog years ago from Scotland, Border Collie. Mm-hmm. Never worked a day in her life. She said all she would do is go underneath the gooseneck trailer and bite at the horses. <laughs> they bred her, and they got Jeff, who had they had for seventeen years, who was the most phenomenal dog they've ever had. So she had told me these stories, and that was before I really got into breeding my dogs. So I stopped listening to people, and I thought, I'm just going to see what happens. Well, Missy, who's the daughter of the dog that didn't work, I bred her to my friend Debbie Pollard that has a herding facility. Four of those dogs out of Missy now have got herding trail championships. Championships. We're not talking just, you know, doing. They're phenomenal. They work stock, they work cattle, they work sheep, they work ducks. And Debbie's gone on with that bloodline, and she's using it now. But if I had listened to what these people said, and I kept telling my husband, I said, I can't believe it. I said, it's whoever's got a check for that dog, they're down the road, and they're out of there, or they give it away. They don't, they don't care. And I go, I don't understand this, but I think they get so obsessed about the working ability. And what I notice is I don't think a lot of these people know pedigrees or genetics. And you, you know, know they'll, breed, they'll breed dogs or they'll buy a dog, but they really don't pay attention to the bloodlines. And so if you keep an open mind and you're not, because this division I hate, I hate this division when yeah. people get nasty about this and, yeah. oh, he's pet or, oh, he's this. Yeah. Keep yourself an open mind and look to the future about where this breed is going. 90% of the people that buy dogs from us are pet people yeah. that are looking for good companions. I'm not concerned about show homes. Because they're looking at a little different venue. If I keep something for a show, I'm like, I've got people on list from Europe that want to have my hog and nose pretty. It's, it's it's really hard to ship a dog to Europe nowadays. Yeah. So I'm I'm not really that concerned about that. It's more for my own what I want to have on my own property. Yeah. But it's like you got to keep an open mind 
and uh, leave your ego at home. Leave your ego at home. Right. Because you may see a dog that you absolutely love and you can't stand the owner and you've gotten a, a verbal altercation, like you said, you you know, bite your tongue. Yeah. Um, my girlfriend is a really good friend of mine that we, we co-breed together. We were talking yesterday. She goes, I think we have a lot of control freaks in the dog show world. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, she said, think about it. Everybody's really controlling about their dogs, their bloodline, how the dog behaves in sports. And I said, I never looked at it, but I think you're right. You know, she's right. Yeah. There's a lot of control that's going on. Yeah. But I think the longer you're in it, the more you see things that you never thought you'd see. Right. You know, you learn something. And you just go, wow, I never knew that. Right. Wow, that's really cool. Oh, that's really fun. And you learn stuff, you know. And so if you keep an open mind, I think you'll do okay. I just don't know what's going to happen down the road with all the crazy things that are going on in the United States. And, and it's expensive to do a breeding program. In the old days, they had cows with 30, 40 dogs, and they could experiment, and, you know, it was considered okay. And now the hobby breeder, you know, maybe one or two dogs, if that, and there's a lot of research going on. It, it's hard to keep up on, on everything. So I tend to fall back on old school a lot and go, you know what? Right. <laughs> this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> this yeah. is what works for me. Right, absolutely. But there's a lot of really good people out there. And then, like, the gal that decided that she wanted to breed dogs, we turned out to be really good friends. She calls me, like, once a week and said, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? And I go, let's get your dog pregnant first. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not right. going to worry about it. I'm actually going to – she's in Texas. I'm actually going to fly out there and help her welfare litter because she had never raised a litter of puppies before. Oh, awesome. Which means I've got to have my husband babysit all my dogs while I'm gone. <laughs> so, uh, Because of the money situation – do you think there needs to be more of a collectivist attitude instead of a, cons uh, you know, kind of a consumer market-driven attitude? It's, it's kind of difficult if you talk to people that are really into it. A good friend and I were talking the other day, and she's breeding a litter, and she said, I've got a couple people that don't want to show, but they're willing to let me use the dogs in a breeding program. Mm-hmm. And she said, we're losing too many good dogs to pet homes that are actually top to the, to the gene pool mm -hmm. because we're, we're requiring that they stay and neuter everybody. Mm -hmm. And I agree with her, but the, the average person isn't willing to take somebody's pet dog into their house and raise a litter. Mm -hmm. But she's a preservationist like I am. And it's kind of like if you want the dog to come back to you. And she just called a friend back east who's looking for another male. And she says, you know what, what we'll do is we'll collect them and freeze and store that. So, so that's what, what happens. We have to have people like that that are willing to say to the pet person, you know what, I'm, I'm letting you have the show puppy. I know you don't want, you know, to breed or raise, but if you let me have the dog just back for one litter or two and then spay them, or if you let me collect your mail after the health tests are done, um, I'll let you have them for a reduced rate. I'll give you the dog. Uh -huh. I mean, that's what I've done with a couple of people, too. It's right. kind of like, well, I have this really great dog, but I've got 12 dogs, and I can't do one more. I don't have a, a place I want it close. You take this dog. The agreement is I get something back. Like the dog I just got back that she didn't want to give me last year, I put in my contract, if it works out, I'd like a puppy back mainly for my breeding program. And I picked the mail for her, and it was an outstanding litter. Now I've got this dog back. And she's everything I would want in a bearded colleague, except she's a little wahoo, you know, but she's just a year old, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. So I preserved some really good bloodlines with that dog. Mm -hmm. 
And so she's who I would go on with. And I, if I meet somebody and say, I'd be willing to raise a litter, my good friend that has Cardigan Welsh Corgis, she'll place an older female that's a finished champion in a pet home and say, can I have her back for a litter because we want to keep the bloodline going. So that's an option, you know, so you, you don't lose um, the gene pool on right. some of these dogs that are fabulous. Right. Not every fabulous dog is going to make it in the show. When you get a litter and you've got dogs in the old days that all finish their championships, but you don't have any homes that are willing to show, what do you do? You put them in good homes, which right. is what is, is most important. So I don't... I, I have a hard time seeing doing a collective effort just because of the individual personalities and everybody, how they think. Right. You know, that, that is the, like you said, you, you run into certain people that think one way and other people think another. And um, if you add up what it costs you to raise a dog, do health tests and breed them, and then go through everything as far as placing dogs, it's not a big money maker. Now, if you're in a puppy mill where you're not doing anything, you know, you're not doing health tests, you're not showing them, you're not, you know, putting back into your breed, then I'm sure there is a financial reward on that end. Right. But vet bills have risen tremendously. Yeah. Tremendous, especially on the West Coast, tremendous yeah. vet bills. I mean, just to even do a, a frozen insemination with my own stud dog and no stud fee will probably cost me $3,000 just in health tests alone. To do it but that's because it's gone up and I'm on a couple of lists you know on the internet and people will do questions like well what are you paying for a c-section what are you paying for progesterone tests and it's amazing how it's different all across the board about the most expensive I think is the east coast and the west coast in between it's not near as expensive I mean I had a when my dirty had a litter this year and I took her in the vets just for an x-ray to see how many puppies my bill was three hundred and fifty dollars yeah and she was in there for five minutes yeah. seriously yeah. i went seriously i couldn't believe it you know it, it it was never like that before and i wasn't expecting that i still would have done it because i needed to do it mm -hmm. but it was like wow prices are really going up so i tell people this i said vet bills are expensive you want to make sure that your dogs are healthy you may pay a little bit more for a purebred, but if they've done the health tests and they've got a good track record behind their dogs, uh -huh. um, you're going to come out ahead in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's um, that's the key. So what what uh, what is like when you freeze semen? What is what is that process like, and where do you store it, and how do you store and, it? You know, it's interesting. It's been so long since I froze it. The last one, it wasn't that expensive when I did it. Uh -huh. 20 years ago, I think I paid like 500 a collection. Uh -huh. And I was using Dr. Popkins, who's down in Santa Rosa, who's a fertility expert. Mm -hmm. And then it was being stored in his facility down there. And I paid $100 a year. And he just sold the practice and he moved all the semen over to Grass Valley. So it's a new place over there. And I think it went up to like $120 a year. So you, you know, it adds up, you right. know, during the year. It, you know, as the years go by. Right. And uh, so that's usually what it costs, but it, it also varies depending on where you're going and who you're dealing with. One of the top fertility experts is in Ohio, Dr. Hutchison. Um, and a lot of people have semen stored there. And then you run into problems now with COVID going across the Canadian border as far as shipping. Europe, it's really expensive to ship semen over to Europe, like $3,000. So just to ship one way. So um, 
usually when a breeder approaches somebody about this, the breeder pays for everything. Right. You know, if, if we place a dog with somebody and we, we want them back to collect them, we'll pay for the collection and uh-huh. the storage. Because uh-huh. basically you own it, you know. And before you can even do that, you have to have a DNA in your dog and all the health tests have to be done. Mm-hmm. Because you, 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 that's how they identify the semen is through the DNA. Right. If you're using it for yourself, you want a facility by you because otherwise you've got to pay for shipping and that's yeah. really expensive to ship the semen. Yeah. I had it with Randy because we're in Humboldt County. There's no fertility vets. They don't even do artificial inseminations up here. Oh, really? And when you go into frozen, you're dealing with, it used to be surgical implant uh-huh. and now they're doing what, what are called transcervicals. And that seems to be more popular versus the, the, um, surgical implant and I did a surgical implant I've done a couple two failed and one worked um, and I'd be more inclined if I do this next year I'll probably be driving to Los Angeles okay. for to a clinic down there okay yeah. who's, who's had a high success rate yeah. but you got to figure you know Humboldt County to LA 12 hours you know hotels yeah. gas yeah. it really adds up but that's what you do if you want want it to work yeah absolutely well, right now what the clubs are doing, like when you run a club that runs a show, nobody's being paid. They're all doing that for free as it is. Right. What's costing is parking, yep. buildings, mm-hmm. um, entry fees. Uh, it, it gets really big. There is a junior handler program, and, there, and there's also the um, owner handler program. But um, I don't think unless they come from a family that does competition Mm -hmm. or, you know, be it uh, cattle, rabbits, rodeo, Mm -hmm. they're not, unless they're inclined, I think it's a different generation. I think it's a different generation. I don't know how you bring it up unless you, maybe you drop the fees for juniors more or Mm -hmm. you drop the fees. It used to be puppy classes were, you know, less expensive. Well, just to walk in the ring for two minutes is $37 now. So, I mean, it adds up, yeah. you know, just, and then you got to factor everything in. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I really don't. I think, and also too, is with all these other sports coming in, people would rather spend their money going to an agility trial than going to a dog show. Right. You know, it's more fun. It's like, the, like I said about the dock diving, uh, there's a lot of other uh, venues that I think are more fun for the kids, unless they're a diehard um, breeder wanting to do that like I was as a kid growing up that's all I ever wanted to do and there was a lot of people like me that wanted to do that mm-hmm. but when you're at the dog show and you realize that you're one of the young ones you're just like oh no oh my goodness right. they, you know I don't have the answer I, I don't yeah. know what it is um, and also too if you think about it they're from a family of showing dogs maybe they don't want to show dogs because that's what they grew up doing right. you know they want to go out and do their own thing yeah so I think everybody has to find it. I don't know what the future is going to be. I think there'll always be dog shows, but it may end up being mixed breed shows. You know, the whole point is, is about breeding, and there is a, an anti-breeding, you know, agenda. Uh-huh. Uh, adopt, don't don't shop. You know, so that's it's almost like you're bad if you buy a purebred dog, which is really sad because they're all, all the dogs are good. You know, you know, you just have to find what works for you. The difference in a purebred dog versus, say, a, a crossbred, mm-hmm. is that you have a you have more knowledge on what that dog's personality, coat, environment, health is going to be like. 
to fit your needs. Mm-hmm. There's somebody posted a joke on Facebook the other day, and I laughed. It was a guy going to a trainer, and he says, I'm having a real hard problem with my dog. He pulls me, and then if he's off leash when we're running, he goes in the woods and chases uh, wildlife. <laughs> and the guy says, well, what is your dog? And he goes, well, the mom's a Siberian Husky, and the dad's a red bone coonhound. And he says, so you... <laughs> You bred two dogs together, one that drags you and one that hunts life, hunts wildlife. <laughs> yeah. And he said, yeah. And he goes, well, how do I stop it? And he goes, you have what you have. This is what was bred. Yeah. And it is what it, you you know what they're, like I tell people, if you don't want a dog to pull, don't get a Siberian Husky or a Malamute. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because that's what they're going to do. If you don't want a dog to herd, don't get a Corgi or a lot of the herding breeds, you know, or don't go to working lines strong working lines because that's all you'll have right. is the working ability and see I've been around some fabulous ones and what people don't understand about Germany when I got my dog Hagendorf he was from a male in Germany mm-hmm. and I looked at the pedigree and I said since I'm familiar to the breeder I go the grandmother is a Schutzen 3 and this is a bearded collie pedigree. Yeah. She goes, oh, everybody does Schutzen in Germany. Yeah. And she says, but you can't do Schutzen if you have a solid dog. Mm-hmm. And so I would, you know, when DOS is being used, people would say to me, what's the SCH for? And I go, uh, Crystal Para did Schutzen with Dickens. She has Schutzen 3 on it and a Schutzen 2 on another dog. And when I visited her in Germany, she pulled her sleeve out and showed me the dogs doing Schutzen. <laughs> she said it's, and I, I'm like going, I, I, it opened my eyes to the, the fact that here I have a border collie pedigree with Schutzen behind it. Right. I mean, it's like going, oh my goodness, because these people are open. And I, when I mentioned poodles to my sister, because she was looking for a dog on the East Coast, I said, Monica, look at the standard poodle. Mm-hmm. And she says, oh my God, I know what a poodle. I said, you, you, you just need to understand about the breed. You can't get a more solid dog if you get from a good breed. They're fabulous dogs. And she ended up getting some dog humane society that has issues with children, issues with people. And yeah. and I said, Monica, why didn't you look at poodles? I didn't want a foo-foo dog. I go, they're not foo-foo dogs. Do you know that there was a, um, a team of poodles? I don't know if they competed in the Iditarod. I may be wrong. I read an article, or it was just one of the big races up by Nome, but I'm pretty sure they didn't finish the Iditarod, but they competed a team of poodles. Right. I mean, they can do anything that yeah. breed can and probably the only reason I didn't get involved with them is the severe scissoring and trimming for the breed ring. Yeah. You know, there's so much of that that you have to do to do a poodle. Yeah. And I've been mentored in poodles by a friend of mine who's a judge for poodles. And mm-hmm. we sat across the poodle ring watching poodles all day. I mean, just fabulous dogs. Yeah, so, I mean, if he says that, it's true. Trust me. Especially if he's German because mm-hmm. the Germans are, are very um, strict about their dogs. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so yeah, this is also really fascinating to me um, is what was the, the process of you becoming a judge what it's was... pretty involved mm-hmm. um, you can go to the AKC and you can download there, it actually has the instructions on what is required to be a judge the minimum requirements of it and I don't I can't remember because I'm also a judge for corgis um you have to do so many assignments as a as a, a ring steward. You have to list how many litters you've bred, how many champions you've raised, and then how many sweepstakes you've judged, and ha- which is what's put on by the national club. There's a bare minimum of what you have to do, mm-hmm. and then you have to write an essay. And then once 
Once you get interviewed by the ATC, they look at your paperwork to see if, you, if, you, if you've done at least the minimum. Then they'll approve you to be what's called provisional. Mm-hmm. And once you're provisional, when you go to a show, um, you're watched by the, an ATC representative, a, a rep, it's called a rep. And they watch you and then they talk to you before you judge and they talk to you after you judge and they tell you what they like about your judging and what they don't like about your judging mm-hmm. and what they would recommend that you you do, you know, and how you improve. Mm-hmm. And you have to go through at least three AKC um, provisional assignments. That's why if you look up people entering shows, it'll say next to the um, judge provisional, which means that they're being watched by the AKC and mm-hmm. they, it's very, so you have to pass. You know, before, and, and if they don't feel you're ready, they won't pass you on to be a judge. Mm-hmm. Once you are provisional and you fill the requirements, and after that, you're allowed to, like, say I applied for Bearded Collies, and then after that, you're allowed to do one-on-one, which means I applied for Cordies, and, and then the rep said you could apply, Kathy, for up to six braids because of your, your sem- oh, you're, you're attending seminars, and you're, you're attending workshops, and, like, when I go to the nationals, I'm on the judge's education committee, mm-hmm. and so what'll happen is, if I'm not showing a dog that day, I sit with the prospective judges, and I will mentor them on the breed all day long. Mm-hmm. We'll sit ringside, and they'll ask me questions. And it's really funny, because now uh, you'll go out there and show, and you'll see people you mentor that you're showing to, you know, but mm-hmm. you, you sit there and tell them what you want to see in a bearded collie, and then you have a hands-on workshop at the end of the day, where the winners come, to the workshop and then you go with the judges and you you get to put your hands on each one so by going to the um shows and going to the nationals that's another part of getting your judges license it takes you several years to Mm -hmm. do this Mm -hmm. and i stopped at corgi's because i'm actively competing in breeding and it's very hard to do both um and i do i do judge but i didn't apply for more breeds because here's an example. Say I breed a litter on the West Coast and several people from me, my dogs from me, and they're showing and stuff. And then they say, please don't accept any assignments because, see, they can't show to me. Right. So so if I accept, a, say, an assignment in Sacramento and I've got several people down there that have dogs from me, um, they're not going to be real happy mm-hmm. <laughs> because they can't go to the shows. You, can't, you cannot... You cannot have a um, financial dealership, I think it's within a year of selling a dog. Okay. And, but my whole thing is if it's got my kennel name on it and I bred it, sorry. And also, too, a lot of people don't realize is once you're a judge, you cannot show any dog in the ring unless you own it and it lives at your house. Okay. And they kind of change that a little bit. You don't have to live at your house, but if your name's on that dog... You can't, I can't, if somebody walks up to me ringside and says, could you hold my dog for a minute? I say, I'm sorry, I can't hold your dog. And they'll look at me and I go, I'm a judge. I cannot touch your dog. Because it gives the appearance of impropriety. Right. Outside the ring. So you're really kind of restricted once you get your license as far as what you can and cannot do. Mm-hmm. Do you have any experiences uh, showing in, like, say, the UKC? No, I've never done UKC. Yeah. No, I've just done AKC, and then I've done um, ASCA herding, and and I did my husband. And I did quite a bit of um, uh, through the USBCHA, which is the United States Border Collie Association. Okay. It's not AKC. Mm-hmm. 
and they're, they're really funny because like if you breed a dog because ours are we're dual registered I registered them the beardies I mean the borders AKC and um, USBCHA the pedigree on the border collie says if you would chain an AKC championship on this border collie your papers will be rescinded <laughs> it says that right on the pedigree yep yep wow. so anybody that I sold a border collie to I said you can't show them in the breed ring in, in uh, AKC because I'll lose my registration because right. most of my dogs that I was bringing was for agility and herding and right. you know stuff like that. Right. 